This month's podcasts are sponsored by Aubergine Legal. Do you sometimes worry that your business isn't meeting all its legal compliance requirements and wonder if you're ticking all the legal boxes? Are you losing sleep worrying about a piece of legislation that you may or may not be complying with? Perhaps you need some help with your client contracts or your data protection compliance. Or maybe you're worried that your website doesn't have the right documents or legal notices in the right place. Perhaps you have a brand that you want to protect with a trademark. How about if you could outsource it all and eliminate all of your worries? If so, then get in touch with Aubergine Legal, a friendly commercial legal consultancy offering practical and clear commercial legal advice without the overwhelming legal jargon, taking the worry away and helping you to protect your business and minimise your risks. Aubergine offers a free 30-minute consultation if you have any questions or want to find out if they can help. And you can access this link and book your free 30-minute call via the link in the show notes. Welcome to the Bring Your Product Ideas to Life podcast. Practical advice and inspiration to help you create and sell your own physical products. Here's your host, Vicky Weinberg. Hi, today I have a fantastic interview for you with Mandy Haberman. Mandy is the founder and creative director of Haberman Global Innovations Limited. So Mandy is basically an inventor as well as being an entrepreneur. She has a fantastic story to share with us today um, where she goes right back to the launch of her first product. But one thing in particular that we talk about that I think will be super useful and helpful is protecting your products. So Mandy talks about patents, about design rights, and she shares her story of what happened to her and her business and the approach she took when a big company and she does name them decided to essentially copy her product um, and she speaks all about how she handled it the outcome of that she also has some fantastic advice of how you can prevent this from happening to you um, and if it does happen and you do feel like someone's breaching on your ideas what you can then do about it so there is so much practical advice in here so if you have really original product idea um this is an episode you definitely don't want to miss so with all that said i'm now going to introduce you to mandy so hi mandy thank you so much for being here hi vicky it's a pleasure to join you thank you so can we start by you giving introductions to yourself your business and what you do please so i am mandy haberman and i'm an inventor and an entrepreneur um i've been an inventor since the early 1980s um, and became an entrepreneur really out of circumstances and necessity. Perfect, thank you. And so let's start talking about your inventions. Let's dive right in if that's okay. Can you talk about um, sort of the the necessity around your first invention and how it came about? Before we do that, can we just go back to the, the first bit? I'll just tack a bit on the end of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and currently, um, I'm contracted to develop technology and products for a major company in Asia. Oh wow! Thank you. That's um, that's a lot. Um, so we've a lot we can dive into this afternoon, which I'm very excited about. If it's okay with you, let's start right at the beginning, um, back in the '90s, with your first invention and the story around that, and we'll take it from there, if that's okay. It was actually um, 1980 when all of this started up. Um, My youngest daughter was born with a particular syndrome and she 
had terrible problems with feeding. She had to be fed with tubes and things. Um, and I had a sort of design background. In fact, it was a graphic design background. But the kind of design thinking um, doesn't matter what the specific skill is, but um, I was able to turn my head towards products. Um, there was nothing in the market that she could feed successfully with, and she certainly couldn't breastfeed. So I had to improvise, effectively invent, um, and create a product that she and other babies with feeding problems would be able to feed successfully from. And that was really the start of everything. So she was born in 1980. I improvised an idea that worked for her. And then in 1982, I started working on turning that into a, an actual product. And that became the Haberman feeder, which um, is used all around the world in, in very well known in medical circles. Oh, wow. So it was, you used it yourself for two years just for, for personal use. Um, I guess that was great because you had a chance to really test it and work out that it worked um, and it was viable. So what what happened then? So from between you creating this, using it for your own daughter, what were some of the steps you took to actually create, you know, get it into a product? Well, it, it actually, I mean, the first two years, it, I was just using my improvised seed idea, which was essentially a, uh, an all rubber dummy with the edge cut off and I was syringing the milk into her mouth. So it was getting milk into her while she was able to suckle on something. Um, and it, I spent about four years researching and going to meetings with um, speech therapists that dealt with infants at risk who dealt with feeding problems. I did a lot of um, uh published paper research I went to see consultants um, I learned all about the physiology of how infants feed so it was five years to actually turn my seed idea into a behaviour feeder which was an actual product um, and I started out initially um, I could go only so far using sort of Heath Robinson type models you know st sticking things together um, bits and pieces that already existed and adapting them um, and then I needed to actually start having bits and pieces molded so that I could test it out properly and use it with babies to make sure it worked but obviously doing that required money um, and I really didn't have any money in those days um, so I wrote to about let me think um, about just under 120 companies um, and organizations um, and I wrote and I told them all about Emily my daughter and the problems that she'd had and our experience and how I wanted to develop a, a feeder for babies with sucking problems because there was nothing out there for them um, and I told them how much I needed and amazingly companies sent money um, I, I don't think it would happen that way now. There's so much regulation. Um, but I did sort of gather the money via a charity that was willing to help me. Um, and I raised about £20,000, which these days wouldn't take you very far. But back in the 80s, um, that was enough to pay for some basic tooling um, and have these specialised teats that I needed made. Um, and we used other bits and pieces which were off the shelf and I adapted um, 
So it, it was still a bit of Heath Robinson, but it enabled me to create a product that was safe to use with babies. Um, and then I spent se- a, a, about a year and a half going around hospitals and going into Sue Mothers with the approval, obviously, of, of the medical staff um, to get them to try it and to see how well it worked. Um, and I, I remember that so vividly because there was one particular mum I went in to see and her baby had exactly the same thing that Emily had suffered with, which was something called Stickler's syndrome. And I walked into the ward with the, the nursing sister um, and this woman was sat there crying, trying to feed her baby. And it, it, re- it still gets to me because it was exactly how I felt when I'd gone through it with Emily. Um, and we sat down, we sterilised the feeder, obviously, um, and we tipped her feed into the Haberman feeder. And she fed straight off she fed successfully um and the mum was so happy and so relieved and and it was like that you know it it was because there was nothing else out there and when you gave those babies something that was actually designed to solve their problem it really worked um and as a result you know once I launched I, I set up a company for my kitchen table and I was selling the feeder I was, a, I was a one man band, one woman band, if you like. Uh, I was doing everything myself from um, cutting the teats and assembling all the parts and putting everything in boxes and dealing with the marketing and, and selling it. Um, and I was selling it by mail order. There was no Internet in those days. Um, and to hospitals and to parents. And it was, um, I think they, you would call it a distress purchase. So there was a ready market for it and it went very well. Not, I mean, we're talking, you know, it's niche market. Um, so not sort of massive volumes, but it was fairly highly priced because you have to look at how many you're going to sell and what price to make. You need to do that to make it viable. Um, and it was a success and doctors started um, writing about it in medical journals and when they were going abroad, they started talking, um, you know, at medical conferences abroad. So the word spread quite rapidly. Um, and I started getting orders from all over the world. That's an amazing story. Thank you. And what, like, it must have been amazing to see that validation that see all those other babies and mothers that it worked for. That just must have been incredible. What a yeah. difference if you haven't had something and you've got this very specific problem. And I'm assuming that if you're in that situation, you're trying everything and to suddenly find that thing that works, what a relief. Absolutely. I mean, I, I created that product because I felt passionately that there should be something out there for babies like mine that have feeding problems because I knew as you know, I've been through it. I knew as a mom, that experience is horrific because, you know, you see your baby. I mean, Emily became quite skeletal. Um, I mean, and then in the end, she was fed with tubes up her nose for four months until I found I improvised the way of feeding her. Um, as a mum, your, your purpose, you know, your biological purpose, if you like, is to produce your young, to feed your young and to give them love. And if you can't feed your baby, you feel like such 
a failure and the anxiety of it is huge. It's, it's like the worst thing in the world. You can't provide for your baby. It, it's a really deep fundamental emotion. Um, and I think, you know, particularly if Emily was fed with tubes and in the, it's probably all different now, but in those days, mum wasn't allowed to feed baby with a tube. It was done by the nursing staff and you had to stand there um, feeling awful. Um, so, yeah, it's it really was um, a, a distress product. And because of that and because it answered the problem, um, it was successful. And you know, the, the, the difficulty was. I produced this thing when I first produced it, I thought, oh, well, I'll go to a baby bottle company and license it, because in those days, all the books, nobody talked about being an entrepreneur. All the books told you, you know, if you're an inventor, you, you patent your idea and then you license it and you get a, a royalty income. And I went to see lots of different companies offering to license it. But because it was niche market and all of those companies were only interested in big volume sales, nobody wanted to do it. Um, and it was only because there was a company called Moore's. I think it does still exist somewhere or they may have combined with somebody else. I don't know. But the marketing director that I saw was such a lovely man. And he said to me, look, it's not for us because, you know, we only want big volumes. But he said, you know, I can see this product works and I can see that you're passionate about it and that there is a need for it. There's a market for it. Why don't you set up a company and do it yourself? And I honestly can tell you that I had no thought about becoming an entrepreneur until that point. Um, and I'd had absolutely no training, no background, no anything. Um, but because I was so passionate about getting it out there and determined that I would make it, you know, get it there. Um, if that was the only option, then that was what I was going to do. Um, and I, I went to the my local enterprise agency um, and I had a very good chat with the guy there. And he gave me the sort of fundamental um, key things that you need to do for a business plan to work out how much your product needs to cost. And I think I went on a seminar or two. Um, and I think I went back to him a couple of times just to sort of sound him out whether I was talking rubbish or whether you know this this was okay and he was very helpful um and I went along to the bank um and I couldn't I didn't want to take any loans because I didn't have anything to offer as security other than the house which my husband had paid the mortgage for so I, I wasn't going to take a loan on the house um but I got a, a little overdraft um and took it from there Wow. So as, as well as the product being born from necessity, it sounds like the company came from necessity as well, because if no one else was going to take it and run it. I guess yeah. the only option was for you to do that yourself. That's incredibly brave, by the way, I have to say, to, especially um, back in a time when, as you said, entrepreneurs didn't. Well, there were obviously there were entrepreneurs around then, but they're possibly not as visible or as seen as an option as it is today. Um, I think that's right. And certainly not a woman. Um, it was. It was very unusual. If I remember being at a party and somebody saying, oh, you know, hello, and you go through the usual chat um, and they said to me, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm an inventor and an entrepreneur. And 
they sort of like smiled politely and started backing away and thought, yeah, I'm after here, you know. <laughs> it was a bit like that then. And if you don't mind me asking, did you, do, you, do you think you came across any, or did you come across any barriers being a woman? Or do you think, did you have any experiences where you feel, well, if I was a man, I'm sure I wouldn't have had this quite the same issue? I wouldn't say that there were, I think a lot of the barriers can be inside your head. Yeah. Um, that's not to say there are not people that experience barriers. They absolutely do. But for me, I didn't sort of think, I didn't approach it differently because I'm a woman. I, I mean, it, it just kind of didn't come into it. But there were times where people reacted to me in ways that they would never in a million years have responded to a man. Um, I mean, this is not the Haven feeder. This is, is later. I remember with the Anyway Up Cup, when I had the prototype for that, going in to see the, the um, CEO of a big major company, okay? Um, and I was taking him my prototype, which worked very well. And I went into the room and he had me standing in front of his desk for about, well, it felt like five minutes whilst he was finishing off some work. Now, he should never have invited me. There was a sort of a, a power play going on there, standing there like a lemon. And in the end, I thought, I'll blow this. So I got my cup, which was full of juice, and I just chucked it in front of his nose on, on top of his papers in front of him because I'm not doing this. So that caught his attention. And then we had a very interesting conversation. Um, and I told him about the cup. And the funniest thing was he then became almost like a little boy. Took my prototype and he was chucking it around his office. Oh, it doesn't spill, it doesn't spill. You know, you got quite excited about it. So that was good. You know, I, I sort of I got his attention and I showed him that the product was really good, innovative, and it worked. Um, and then when we finished talking, the sort of the business side of things, he was sort of asking me about myself. Then he started telling me about his love life and how he was having an affair with his own pair. I mean. Never in a million years, never in a million years would he have said that if I was a man. I felt extremely uncomfortable. So that, that was one instance. And then uh, another one. I, went, I was um, with the, the Haberman feeder. Um, when the business was getting going, um, I decided to use a local business that was run for disabled people um, who could put things together as an assembly line and I thought that seemed appropriate it was a nice thing to do um, and there again I went in to see the guy that ran it um, very nice chap um, and then he went to kiss me on the way out and I it's like back off <laughs> my space you know these days I mean I mean, God knows what he was doing with the women on that assembly line. Just, I don't want to think about it. But, you know, things like that went on in the 80s. Yeah. And I'm sure to be possibly things like that still go on now, which is sad I'm to sure. say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, I'm, yeah, I'm definitely glad to hear that your experiences were few and far between and also that they certainly didn't hold you back or in any way. So that's positive at, at least. Yeah. 
And coming back to when you just mentioned the assembly lines, just coming back to Hayden and Vida for a moment. So what I was interested in is how you transitioned from um, sort of put, assembling this product and putting it in boxes at your kitchen table to having it go actually into production elsewhere and you stepping back from that hands-on, you know, putting it all yeah. together yourself phase. Yes. Um, I mean, it, it was pretty ridiculous. I was doing everything myself and the house was full of boxes. I had three small children under five um, and I was working around the kids so that you know they were going to nursery and preschool and you know and I I was fitting in work around them um and it was beginning to get a bit ridiculous and then when I started to get the orders coming in from overseas I thought I've got to I can't I've got to do something now today I think if I was in that situation I probably would have taken on um, a small premises and taken on staff and grown it. I, and this is, I think is the, you know, the being the woman, where does it hold you back? I didn't have the confidence in myself to take on the responsibilities of paying salary and having overheads. Um, so I decided at that point that I would have another go at trying to license the product because I had a UK patent and I had trademarks. Um, at the time when I did my patents, I had, you know, I, I wasn't seeing the bigger picture. I was seeing myself as a cottage industry, if you like. Um, and also I didn't have very much money. So I had a UK patent and I didn't think I would need any more because, you know, I was going to sell this product to hospital. I know I didn't think ahead that there'd be exports, you know, um, so I decided that what I would do was to license out the overseas side of it because I could manage the UK supplying. Um, but I only had a UK patent. However, I eventually found a very good company um, that sold things like um, inc- you know, baby incubators and things that went into hospitals. Um, and I managed to negotiate a five-year license based on know-how and know-how is like your trade secrets, the things that all the things I'd learned about the production of this product, all of the experience that I'd gathered. Um, And I did the license based on know-how and use of the trademark. Um, And that was fine. And they took over production because I, When I, when I was negotiating that license, I had a, a major quality control issue with the manufacturer. And that is such a headache. Um, I mean, got it sorted out, but, it, it, you know, you don't want those sort of headaches. So when they said, well, look, we can manufacture, you know, we've got our own factories. And it was in Switzerland, very high standard. Um, I was very happy for, to let them manufacture. So then I took product off of them to supply the UK market and they sold to the rest of the world. Um, the only hitch came at the end of the five years. They didn't need me anymore because they already knew how to do it and they'd made a few changes themselves, etc. Um, and I could see it coming that they wouldn't renew the license and I would not be on strong ground to renegotiate. However, the bulk of their sales were to America through their sister company there. 
and the product was well established as the Haberman feeder. So I got in touch with the American sister company um, and I negotiated a license with them based on trademark. And that was fine. I carried on getting a royalty um, and it worked very well. Um, I ceased that. Uh, I terminated the license some quite a few years later because they were doing something a bit naughty with my trademark. So um, it, they now call it something different, but it's the same product. Oh, OK. So in the in the US at the moment, so the same products being sold just under a different name. Being sold globally, but it's it's called the um, Medela Special Needs Feeder now. Um, but the strange thing is that if you go online and look in medical circles, everyone still calls it the Haberman Feeder, which I love. <laughs> and so you have no involvement with the product anymore. Is that right? No, not now. Not now. OK. And that, that license that you mentioned, the know-how license, I've never heard of that before. Is that something that still exists today? Yes, you can do a license based on, based on trade secrets. Okay. And in fact, that can be a very good way of protecting your product um, because patents can be expensive. Not everything is appropriate for trade secrets. But I mean, you think about Coca-Cola, their recipe is a trade secret and it's a very well kept secret. Um, if you have trade secrets, it's no good just to say, oh, I've got, I've, you know, I've got this secret. You, you actually have to sort of um, create a sort of audit trail so everything's on paper. So you can prove if a lot. One way of doing it is to write, write it down when you have that idea or whatever it is and post it recorded delivery to yourself. So that it's in an envelope, it's sealed, it's got the date stamp, it's got everything else. So you can, that's a way of establishing that that is your secret. You've had that idea then in that time um, and keeping an audit trail of everything. So that if at a later stage, if you produce something commercially successful, you know, it's going to get copied. Um, and if it becomes a dispute in court, having all that evidence shows that you kept it secret and it is your secret and it was your idea and that's when you had it so that's that's quite a, a good way of uh, it's a sort of belt and braces way if you've got other protections as well that's really helpful thank you and I do want to talk about infringements and things like that in a moment um but I know that relates to the anyway anyway up cup so I guess that's probably a good time to start talking about that product and how that came about if that's okay okay um, so oh, I've got one in my hands. This is an Anyway Up cup, which is basically it's a cup with a valve to control the flow of liquid. So the child can drink. I don't know if you can hear this. Child can drink, but then take it out their mouth. You can turn it upside down, shake it around, throw it around the room and it won't spill. Now, everybody's got valve cups now, but I invented that in. Um, 1996 no sorry 1991 when I had the idea um, and in those days trainer cups were a cup with a lid and a spout with a row of holes on um, and of course when you turn it upside down it's a watering can and children love water play so they used to sprinkle juice everywhere and you'd end up mopping up spending your time mopping up and trying to get the stains off the sofa so um, it was a revolutionary thing um, when I brought it out, I launched it in 1996. Um, and this time I'd learnt 
a lot from my previous experience with the feeder and I knew that I needed patents in all the, my major markets. Um, so I protected it with patents. If I'd have been really clever, I would have registered design rights on it as well. Um, at the time, I, I didn't really understand the full purpose of design rights, but design rights protect what something looks like. Um, and some of my designs became quite iconic. Um, and of course, patents only protect you for 20 years and you've already used up maybe five years by the time you reach the market. So their life is limited and they're very expensive. Um, whereas design rights, you'd have to look it up. But it, they go on, for, I think it's something like 70 years and it's maybe even longer than that. Um, and I could have carried on getting royalties even when my patents ran out, had I have registered my design rights. So, yeah, I, I make lots of mistakes. But <laughs> I learn as I go along. <laughs> And uh, we all do, <laughs> definitely we all do. And did design rights, um, did, are they just around how the product looks or how it functions as well, if that makes sense? Yeah, it certainly does. Um, a patent protects technology, which is how something works, how it functions. It could ha be embodied in any form or design. So it could look completely different in all sorts of ways. But if it works in that way, if the technology is the same, it's covered by that patent. A design right just protects what something looks like. And the reason I didn't take out my, register my design rights was that people can get round design rights. They only need to change, I think it's seven things. Um, you know, the angle of this, the colour of that, the slight shape of it, they can get around them. So I felt they weren't strong enough as a design right by itself. But the reality is, so I, I have, I've had licensees who have produced things to my design. So they've, they've been under my patent, but they've been my design. It's my car. In fact, they were my tools that they were using. Um, and when my patents ran out, they carried on making those cuts exactly the same. And I could have carried on getting royalties if I'd have had design rights. So okay. design, you know, go on for your lifetime, practically, whereas a patent is only 20 years. That's so helpful. Thank you. So I guess in the case of your cup, the design rights protected what the cup looks like. But, you know, from on the outside and the patent protects the uh, technology inside that prevented leaks. Is yes. that a good way of thinking of it? Perfect. Thank yes. you. Yeah. Just so we're super clear on that. Um, OK, thank you for explaining all of that. I think that's really, really helpful. Um, I, I'll be honest, I hadn't heard of design rights. I'm familiar with patents, but design rights wasn't something I was familiar with. So that's good to know. There's, there's a lot of different rights, intellectual property rights. Um, I mean, most people have heard of copyright, obviously, but there's image rights. There's there's a whole there's trademarks. Trademarks are hugely important because you build up your brand. And even though patents expire, if you're established in the market under your brand, that brand has a huge amount of value. So, you know, registering these things is vitally important because it's what protects you in the market. Not only is it what protects you in the market, but they are things that you can sell. So you can license them, you can sell them. Um, you know, it's part of trade. 
And I know, I know so many people that have a wonderful idea, a wonderful product, or even a wonderful service, and they build up their business, but they haven't registered anything. And somebody comes along, uses the same name, because it's not registered, so they can still use it if they want to use it. And they set up and more or less copy the business, and they make loads of money, and the other person goes out, out of business or loses a lot of money because there's nothing that they can do about it. My case, because I had patents, you know, when I launched the Anyway Up Cup, um, it was a massive, I wouldn't say overnight success, <laughs> over a few nights maybe, it, it was a massive success very quickly. Um, because it took a large amount of market share away from the market leaders in baby cup. It wasn't long before one of them decided to copy it. Um, it looked different, but it was my technology. And, you know, blow me down. It was one of the companies that I'd gone to with my early prototype because I thought, again, I thought, you know, I'll license it. I don't really want to set up a company and have salespeople and everything else. I just, you know, I just want to make some money from it. Um, it was one of the companies that I'd gone to and offered them a license when I was showing them my prototype and they'd signed a confidentiality agreement. They knew I had a patent. In fact, I had two patents on it, but they still copied. And I think I can only give my alleged, my opinion of what I thought went on in their heads. I think my cup was suddenly very successful and they thought, well, this is a rather good product. And hey, it's taken like, you know, 40% of our sales. We can't have that. Um, we'll copy what's she going to do about it. Because the reality is that if you go to court to enforce your rights, it's hugely expensive. And they thought that they could bully me. Um, and what would I do about, in the end, you know, little Mrs. Haberman, she'll, she, she won't do anything. You know, she'll turn the other cheek and she'll, She'll go away. Um, and at worst, what, what would happen? We, maybe we'd have to take a license and give her a royalty. But they thought they'd try it on. That's what I think. Anyway, um, so they came out. It was, uh, I think you probably all know the brand. It was Tommy Tippy. They came out in the market with a cup that had, it was so much like my early prototype. Um, unbelievable. But they were Tommy Tippy. We were the new kids on the block. Tommy Tippy was a brand that everybody had grown up with. You know, it was a trusted brand. And if you've got a baby, do you buy products from a company you've never heard of? Or do you buy it from the trusted brand? Of course, you buy trusted brand. And it had a devastating effect on our sales. Um, again, slight exaggeration, but almost overnight we lost about two thirds of our sales because we couldn't compete with them alongside us. And it was a really difficult decision um, to do anything about it, to actually take legal action. Um, I'd been to see my solicitor um, and my patent agent and my patent agent had looked at the infringing product and said, yeah, well, it's clearly an infringement. Um, go and see the solicitor. I went to see the solicitor. Um, and my legal people said to me, you must settle. Nobody goes to court. You'd be mad to go to court. You've got to settle. We had 
a meeting with the company, uh, Tommy Tippy Company, it's a company called Jackal International. We had a meeting with them, but we couldn't arrive at a sensible, a viable solution um, because they really thought, I'm just going to go away. I'm not going to push it. Um, and I, I went grey almost. Well, I went grey over all of this. Um, just trying to decide what to do. Should I take legal action? Shouldn't I take legal action? I, if I do, what happens in the UK is that the loser has to pay both sides costs. And because this would, because we needed a speedy resolution, it would mean that we had to go to the high court, not like the local county court level. Um, and it meant risking everything. If I lost, I would lose the house. Um, my kids would have to come out of the schools that they were at. We would have been bankrupted because you're talking about millions of pounds. Um, but eventually I, I just had this sort of light bulb moment and I realised that if I didn't stop them and set a precedent, then every single company in, in the baby industry would copy and I wouldn't have anything left. I wouldn't be making any money. And I put so much into this in terms of sweat as well as money. Um, and I wasn't prepared to see somebody steal it and, and just lose it and make it all for nothing. So I took the decision to go to court. Um, once I'd taken that decision, my legal team were, yes, like, let's do it, you know. And I think it was because they, they didn't want to give me any encouragement to go to court in case I lost because the risk was so enormous. But we went to court and thank heavens I won. Um, and I mean, it, you know, it, it, they tried to go to appeal but in the end, they settled before appeal, but I, I won and I got all my costs back and I got damages. And so, you know, it, it, it was very good. So it was a nightmare scenario, but it turned out okay. And it does show that the patent system works even if you are a very small player. But because I enforced my rights, it meant that sales of my product escalated very rapidly. And so instead of infringing, companies started to come to me asking for licenses. And I did grant several licenses to very major players. Um, so not only was I selling my own product and making revenue from that, but I was also getting a very, very good revenue from royalties from wow. the sale what would have been my competitors. So, you know, intellectual property is, it's a brilliant thing because it not only protects what you're doing and protects your position in the market, but it enables you to exploit your idea in ways beyond your own sort of personal business. Thank you so much for that. I, what a story um, and what a position to be in. I'm so pleased that it works out for you as it did um because as you said that just sounds like an enormous like, listening to your story my heart was in my chest even though I knew the ending it just <laughs> seemed like you know it's wow it's um quite a thing to have gone through and how long did this whole process take from sort of you being aware that Tommy Tippy had infringed on your rights to getting a resolution how long was that process 
from memory, I think it was getting to trial was fairly quick. Um, I think we did it in about four months. Um, and the trial itself, actually in court, was just a few days. Um, and then the other side put in an appeal, which would have been heard about 18 months later. So, you know, you, you, you break open the champagne because you win, but then they appeal and you have that hanging over you. Um, but actually, when it came to close to the appeal date, they settled. Um, and that's when we got everything paid out. So, Well, I'm glad it all works out. That is a long, I mean, four months, I know, is probably relatively quick. That's a long time to be living under this kind of stress and uncertainty. And especially if it was affecting your sales, because I'm assuming that while this is all waiting to go through the courts, Tommy Tippy is still selling their cup, um, still having a knock-on effect on your sales. Is that the case? Or, or were they asked to cease? When you um, when you initiate the legal action, are they allowed to carry on selling until the court date, or do they have to stop? Uh, they were. I'm trying to remember exactly what happened. I from memory, um, I think we we wanted to have them stopped straight away, and to do that, you have to have something called an interlocutory injunction, which is granted by the court. Um. But the downside of doing that is that you stop them straight away and it can be a while till you get to court and you get everything resolved. But if you lose, you then have to pay them for all of the sales that they've lost. Okay. So when we went to court to get this interlocutory injunction, the, the judge said to me, I'm not going to give you that, he said, but what I will do is give you a speedy trial. And that's how we managed to get into court within about four months. So, so that was very good. I think at the judgment for that first court hearing, um, I think that's when they had to stop producing. Um, but they put in an appeal, but I think they'd, they'd already been stopped. That's my memory. I could be wrong, but I, I think that they had to stop straight away. Okay, that's good at least. So I'd love to have um, your thoughts on how people can sort of prevent this sort of thing from happening and what to do if it does happen. Because, I mean, even just last week I was on Instagram and I saw a comp the story of a small business um, whose products have been copied by a much larger retailer. Um, yeah, literally just last week. So obviously this sort of thing is still happening. I do see, you know, these stories do pop up from time to time. Um, so how would you first of all suggest someone best protects their, their products and their ideas initially and then second part of the question if you are in a position where you believe actually someone's copying my ideas what do you do then mm. um i think the very first piece of advice would be before you before you do any, anything you know when you've had your idea and you, you think you've got something you've got an idea of what it's going to be and how it works do your homework go you can do everything online now. I mean, in my day, I had to go along to the patent library and climb up these wooden steps and great, greatly dusty volumes down. But now everything's online. Go to the UK Patent Office website and you get all the links from there about how to search. And you can search trademarks, you can search design rights. 
um, logos, you can search patterns. There's, there's different um, sections and you can search just about anything. Um, do a really good search. And then if the, it, because you can save yourself a lot of heartache, you know, if, if you've had this wonderful idea and you want to put all this money into it um, and you want to set up a company and do it and somebody's already done it. And in fact, you're infringing them. You don't want to be in that position. You know, you want to know early on whether your idea is original and different and protectable. So that's the first thing. Then I would go along and see either phone up the helpline um, at the patent office or get in touch with the um, Chartered Institute of Patent Attorneys who are based in Holborn in London, um, and they will send you a list of registered patent attorneys. Go and see an appropriate patent attorney because not only do they know about patents, but they also know about trademarks and design rights and copyrights and all of the other rights. So if you're not in the right room, they'll, they'll very soon guide you to the right person. Um, then you talk to them about your idea and describe it to them, show it to them, whatever. And it's confidential. It's like going to a doctor. They're not going to, uh, they're not going to steal your ideas. Um, and discuss with them the best way to protect it. And then the other thing you must do, and it's absolutely essential, is you must keep it secret. Um, don't start, you know, you have your idea. Don't start showing it to loads of other people. Because if you've disclosed it publicly without a non-disclosure agreement or a secrecy agreement, confidentiality agreement, they're all the same thing. Um, if you disclose it without having a non-disclosure agreement in place, then you can't patent it. Um, and I think even with design rights, I, I don't know for sure. I think there might be a little bit of time, but if you've already shown it to people, it's much harder to protect it. So keep it secret. And if you want to show it to people, get them to sign a non-disclosure agreement, a confidentiality agreement. And you can get all these things online. There's like templates you can find. Um, so keep your idea secret, go and get advice from a patent attorney, and then decide what the best way of protecting your idea is and apply for those rights. Um, some people might be tempted to do their own patent, to write it out themselves. That's a very bad idea because patent Right, drafting a patent is a really difficult skill because the, there's a sort of um, there are different words that are used which can create a broader patent or a narrower patent, and there's ways of doing it. And we, as lay people, we don't know how to do that. That needs special training. But if you're applying for um, a design right. That can be done online through the patent office, and you can do that yourself. Trademarks, you can register yourself. Obviously, domain names, you do that in a, differently, but um, get your domain names. 
there, so there's quite a lot that now that you can do yourself, but don't try drafting your own patent. Get a professional to do that. Thank you. And I just wanted to pause there and, and just ask um, about cost, really, um, and just to get an idea of whether applying for a patent is something that people should be expecting to pay a lot of money for or because um, I'm not really sure. I mean, I, I know it might be a ballpark thing. It, it's a yeah, it's how long is a piece of string. Um, the cost of a patent depends on actually getting to grant of it. It's a process. You, you start by applying and then there's um, various procedures and then there's an examination where they look at your patent and they decide if there's other things that mean that you can't have a patent because it's already been invented or that technology is already out there in some way. Um, or this, the, 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 the examination will come back citing certain documents um, and you can adjust the words in your patents to or, or take out parts of your patent parts things that you claim to still have a patent but so that you're you're not falling foul of these other things um, and then you get to grant and you so you you then pay you say right my patent has cost me xml but then you're probably going to want to have patents in other countries so, you know, don't be like I did with the Haven and Feeder and just have a UK patent. These days, it's not enough because, you know, everything is sold online and you're immediately out in the world. Um, I would say, you know, patenting worldwide is hugely expensive and you really don't want to do that. Work out where your important markets are and patent in those countries. And there are ways of deferring costs. Um, and there's also ways of protecting or deferring costs by, um, they do patents in sort of blocks. So the whole of Europe, all the EU countries are in a block and you can get a patent for that block. Um, at a later later stage, you then divide it up into you know, Germany and France and wherever, but you can start by going for the block. Um, and there are other blocks. There's a sort of, um, you know, the stands are all in a block. Uh, yeah, so, have I answered your question? I'm not sure. Yes, um, you have. Thank you. You have. Thank I mean, I, I think that the cost of a patent, if you, you're talking about thousands, you're not talking about hundreds. But to start the process, you're probably looking un, under £5,000. I mean, it's you know, somewhere probably around two to 4000 if you're using a patent agent. Thank you. And I know that I just think it's good for people to have an idea of what it might cost. Um, but also, I think your story is a really good illustration of the fact that it can cost you a lot more should you know, should you not have it and then something go wrong down the line. I, I think that's right. You know, if I hadn't have had patents, then honestly, I would have made I've made a little bit of money in the first couple of years and then it would have stopped and I wouldn't have made a penny. So. Yeah, I mean, to me, patenting is is the backbone of my business, really. Yes, and if your if your idea is original, I think it does sound like you absolutely need to invest in that upfront to to protect your business for the long term. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you have to. You don't want to part with a lot of money until you know that you've got something that's going to make you money, essentially. I mean, you know, we're in business. The idea is to make money. 
Um, I think it's very important to, before you start very, very early days, to do your homework and make sure that this idea that you have, that people are actually going to put their hand in their pocket to pay for it. And there are ways of doing that without disclosing your idea. You can talk, you can do, you know, um, do a questionnaire if you like, and talk to people about the problem with doing something. You know, how much, you know, how big a problem is this? How would you get around this problem? If there was a product that solved that problem, what would you be prepared to pay for it? You know, there are ways without actually saying, I've got this idea, it's this. Um, and again, you have to be wary because people want to be kind. Everyone wants to please you. You know, there's a big difference asking somebody, would you buy this product? And then actually putting their hand in their pocket to part with their hard earned cash. So wording your questions um, is quite a skill, I think. Because it's only it's only really worthwhile doing something if, if there's a cheap if there's an easier way or an alternative way of solving that problem, and it's going to cost them less than it would to buy your product. Guess what? They're not going to buy your product. They're going to solve it in an easier, cheaper way. Um, so, costing your product is all important. And even if you're going to be selling it direct through the internet, there are costs along the way on top of your product cost. So you need to find out how much your production cost is gonna be. And it's worth having that value engineered to make sure that you, you are producing it at the lowest possible cost. You can always have a bigger margin, um, but being able to produce it in the easiest and simplest way, lowest, lowest cost way is very important. Because apart from anything else, if somebody copies your idea and they can produce it cheaper than you can, then you're going to be out of business quite soon. So, um, you know, quality is important, too. But you, you, you've got to produce a quality product, a reliable product and have it engineered so that it's the cheapest way you can produce it. Thank you. And I think you make a really good point about sort of working out whether people would actually pay for it as well. And um, something I often say to people is make sure you are also make sure you're asking the right people. Because, for example, it with you, I mean, the Hayden feed is probably not a good example. But if it had you been asking your friends and family, let's say, who weren't in that unique situation of having a problem that you had a solution for, they might have said, yes, yes, this is a good idea because they knew you and liked you. But actually, the real test is asking the people who actually have a need for that product yes exactly I mean you know when I when I was doing the anyway up cut when I started with that idea um I was to asking mums you know if there was a cup that didn't spill and it was like when can I have it <laughs> you know? um, and then I when I had I applied for the patents and I produced my prototypes and I put them out with you know 10 mums to try out with their kids um and it, you know it was again you know you know, do, would would you buy this product if it was for sale? At you said, well, when when can I buy it? And can I buy? It? You know, I mean, it's that that's the kind of response that you're looking for. Yes, yes. 
So coming back to IP infringement, um, so say you are a small business um, and you have a unique product and then you suddenly realize that um, Marks and Spencers, just as an example, Marks and Spencers are selling something that looks suspiciously like your own design. What do you then do? Okay, so you buy that product and you keep the receipt. Um, Then you go along to your patent attorney and you show them show it to them and get an opinion from them. They will examine it and look at, so if you have a patent, you have what's called claims, which are all the different things that need to, that will be in your product. And if somebody's infringing even one of them, it's an infringement, okay? Um, so they will examine it and they'll make a decision. If it's a design right, you know, it's a similar thing. You need somebody other than yourself to look at it and say, you know, looking at it objectively, is this infringing? Is it the same color? Is it, you know, has it got the same radius here? Has it got the same shape there? All of those things will be in the design, the design, right, how it looks. Um, And copyright is, you know, a similar thing. They will look at it um, to see whether actually you owned copyright in what you had and whether this is infringing it. Then um, a lot of patents, it used to be that, um, patent attorneys wouldn't do legal action. You had to go to a solicitor. But now a lot of patent attorney firms do the, are able to do their own um, legal action. Um, and it often goes to a solicitor. There, there are things that can be done. I mean, you your solicitor will advise you whether it's worth sending them a letter which might be on the solicitor's headed paper, um, which says draws their attention to the fact that there is this product and it appears to be the same. That they're very making that sending that letter needs to be done by a lawyer or or your patent attorney because there are there are legal implications. I don't know whether the law has changed, but it used to be that if you wrote to someone and implied that they were infringing, even if you had no intention of going to court, they could sue you for saying that they you were for you coming to them and trying to say that they should stop because they're infringing. They could actually take legal action against you. Um, I don't know if that's still the case and how the words in the law has, has changed over the years. Um, but take legal advice. Don't jump into things. Um, I do know some people that have dealt with matters through social media. Um, I'm person personally. I'm wary of doing that. I think that you might be okay if if it's handled very carefully. I would still feel very nervous of doing that, um, and I would still take legal advice before you start handling things through social media I just think it can backfire on you very badly and the other thing to recognize is that if you use social media a lot everything that you've ever written on social media or said on social media is out there and it's out there forever and it's retrievable so if you end up in a court case, they could point to something that you've said or something that you've written and it can really compromise you. So 
I just think, you know, I'm not, personally, I'm not a huge fan of social media, but I think that's more to do with my age than anything else. Um, but I think if you are using it and you're using it for business, just, just remember, keep it back of your mind. Everything is out there and it's out there forever. So just be careful with what you say. Um, and that, I mean, I think that's general, general advice anyway. Um, so going back to your question, I, I purchased a sample. I kept the receipt. I went to see my lawyer. The lawyers, uh, I went to see my patents agent who sent me to the lawyer. Um, and I did have a little bit of legal costs insurance, um, which turned out to be nowhere near enough. But it enabled me to at least have a few meetings with my lawyer and then decide what to do. OK, so that's something people could possibly think about as well as part of your business insurance is having a little bit of legal cost insurance. I think yeah. I have that, actually. I think it's quite standard on lots of policies as a yeah. on actually. Yeah, that's really good advice. Thank you. And I, I, I like your advice to sort of handle it with a letter initially, because I think there, there always is the chance. I mean, I like to always be a glass half full kind of person. I guess there always is the chance that this is a genuine mistake. This company's never seen your product. They've got no idea that they're infringing yeah. on your on your yeah. rights don't um, you believe it don't you believe it <laughs> really oh I like to I, oh. yeah I mean, it's, there are as there are some cases where you get like small companies you know um startups and entrepreneurs who will set up something and and they they don't know that you've got the same product and they shouldn't be doing it. that 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 can happen and you know obviously then you're not going to drag them through the courts um, and it's only worth going to court if there's a very significant sum of damages to be made you know what's the point of doing it just for mm. um you know mor- moral you know justice I, I, I you know you mustn't do that because I it's mine um it's only worth doing it if there's value in doing it that's true and actually now that I've now that my brain's whirring I'm thinking actually a larger company presumably should be doing their due diligence before launching something just to be sure that they, you know, they presumably have people employed to make those sorts of checks. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I guess if they've gone ahead and done that, they've gone ahead knowingly, possibly assuming, you know, making the same similar assumptions as Tommy Tippy made about you, that this is a small company, they won't do anything. Exactly. It's fine. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it goes back to what I said at the beginning in, in terms of advice, do your homework before you start your business or before you start with your product. It's the same for these big companies. If they're going to launch a product, they will have sat down, looked at the market, see, you know, they will, they know exactly what's in the market. Um, and they, they've got the resource to do a much better job of that search than I have or any other small business has. You know, they have a department that deals with these things. They know exactly what's there and they know what's being successful. They know they've got their eye on the things that they're going to copy or try and get around and they'll try and get around the patent sometimes I think I'm incredibly naive because I do like to believe that um these things don't happen on purpose but yeah that's it's it's good to know it's good to have that knowledge definitely if if you're entering into you know if you're a startup and you're entering into a business in a particular sector it's very important to have a good knowledge of that sector you know there's no point in, in with anything in creating a product that's a me too product that's being sold somewhere else why why would you do it yeah, because you will only get so far. Yeah, exactly. 
So what I'm interested to know, Mandy, is if you do face a patent infringement, are there any alternatives to go into the high court? Is there anything else you can do? Well, yes, actually. I mean, yes, a lot has actually changed since um, I took my court action. Um, I mean, that, you know, was really, really scary. And there's lots of now alternatives to going to court, which make it much more um, accessible to get justice without having to sort of resort to the courts. Um, for instance, I mean, the UK IPO, that's the UK Patent Office, um, they offer a procedure which is like opinions. So you go with the person that's challenging your patent or that is infringing your patent, um, and you both make your arguments to the patent office and they have like a tribunal and they listen and they give an opinion. Now, that's not legally binding, but on the other hand, if they say, oh, these people are infringing, um, it makes it much easier to then sit around a table and negotiate and just come to a settlement between you. So a sort of dispute resolution. Um, and obviously there's mediation and alternative dispute, dispute resolution, which is being used a lot more these days. And there's, as well as the high courts, there's now something which is a bit like the sort of the, the county court level, if you like, which is called um, IP and Enterprise Court. And that's available to people. Um, it, it, damages are capped. And I'm not sure of all the ins and outs, but I think that each side pays their own costs. But it's a much quicker way of getting a decision. Um, and it's much cheaper and you get there much e more easily. But a couple of years ago, um, the judges realising, you know, that there is a problem for people on a low budget um, that want access to justice. Um, the IP judges set up something called IP pro bono. Um, and if you are appropriate for that, that's a way of getting legal advice without having to pay or without having to pay very much anyway um so there's lots of alternatives now so I, I wouldn't be put off and think oh my god you know if you've got a patent it means you're going to end up in high courts you're not and to be honest you only end up in a dispute if somebody's infringed your patents and if if that happens it's because you've got something that's commercially successful so you're only going to have to get into that situation if there's money coming in anyway that's perfect thank you and thank you for all those options you've given because I think that'd be a relief to people to realize they don't necessarily have to go straight to the highest level um I know we covered this before briefly Mandy but just as a reminder what would be if someone's in a situation where their patent's being breached what would you say is the the first step because obviously there's lots of options open what would it be to contact your lawyer in this instance um well you could contact your lawyer um also there's the business and IP centre that's run by the British Library. Um, and they have, I mean, the main one, which it started in London, but they have branches all over the country now. And they have um, a lawyer uh, sort of like in residence. So you can go and you can talk to that lawyer and that won't cost you anything. That's perfect. Thank you. Just for anyone who's listening and thinks, oh, I need to do something, but I don't know which of these routes is best. That's so helpful. Thank you. 
So I just have a few more questions, Mandy. Um, and I know we've gone a little bit out of order because, you know, we're having a conversation and that's how conversations tend to go. But before you go, I can't let you leave without asking you something I'm really curious about, which is the story of how you got the Anyway Up Cup launched. I know you managed to get that product into Tesco and I would love to hear the story around that, please. Yeah, well, when we first started out with the Anyway Up Cup, we knew that we had to get big volumes to make it viable. And that really meant getting into the supermarkets. Um, But because we were a one product company, none of them wanted to buy product from us. So we thought this is crazy. You know, they've said, no, we know that once this gets on the shelves, it's going to fly. How do we do it? So we decided we've got to sort of sit up and make them take notice. So we did something which, oh, my God, it, <laughs> now I think, oh, my God, how did we ever do this? Because it was, it was taking such a risk. We took one of our cups and we filled it full of concentrated black currant juice by Bina, pop, pop the lid on, um, and we put it inside a white cardboard shoebox. No plastic bags, no cling film or anything like that, just a cup full of juice rolling around inside a white box. And... We sent it through the post to the head bar of Tesco's, put a little note inside that said, um, well, if this arrives as a soggy mess, we've shot ourselves in the foot. But if it arrives and it hasn't spilt, please, could you give us a call? So we posted this thing. off. I mean, you know, that, anything, it could have got crushed in the post. I could have got sued by the post office. <laughs> um, we sent it off and we waited Four days later, the phone rang and it was the head bar of Tesco's phoning us. And she said, oh, my God, I've received this. It's amazing. I can see, you know, it's a cup. It's got a hole in the spout. I can see the juice and it hasn't come out. I want it. Um, and within, well, you know, have some pipe fill and everything else. But within a matter of a few months, we were on the shelves in Tesco's. And then, of course, once one supermarket's got it and it's flying off the shelves, then all the others quickly come on. So that's how in the first year of trading. So that's right from when we very first started. Um, and so really, it was only about nine months of trading, I would say. We were into two supermarkets and we'd sold half a million cups, which was pretty good going. That's amazing. Going. And yeah, and I love that story. I had no idea what the story was, but that's that's really bold. I think I think what the lesson that to, to pick up from that is that you've really got to stand out from the crowd. You've got to make people stand up and take notice. And sometimes you have to take a bit of a risk. Yeah. And, and yeah, and sometimes risks can really pay off. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. That's a great that's a great story. Thank you for sharing that. That's a pleasure. Okay, I'm keeping an eye on the time, Mandy, because I know we're possibly starting to go, to go over. So I had just one more thing I'd like to ask you about. I can't resist the opportunity because you are known as an inventor. Um, so I would just love to ask you if you have any tips or advice when it comes to product design. I think that would be great to ask about as well. I, I think my my biggest tip, it, it it's a sort of a, a formula that I have. You have to have technology that's your intellectual property you have to have great design because and and combine the two because you can have the best product in the world 
and it can be on the shelf, it can be online, whatever, unless somebody it actually catches somebody's eye and makes them want to know more, they're not going to pick it up and read about it. So if you combine intellectual property, your, your patent with great design, then you get that stop me and buy one moment. And that's when you can be very successful. Um, I, yeah, ju just very quickly. So when I first launched the Anyway Up Cup, it looked just like everybody else's cup because um, I'd made, I, you know, basically I'd, I bought a, a off the shelf cup base and I'd applied my lid and it looked just like everything else. A year later, when we'd had it designed by a top designer to look at the aesthetics and make it look great, it flew. I mean, we we were doubling our sales monthly um, and we ended up selling over a million cups in our first year with the new designs. So I, I think the secret is, you know, with the original looks like everything else design, we would have been successful. It would have grown much more slowly. As it was, the great design meant it flew off the shelf and we got 40% market share. That's great advice. Thank you. And I think it's it's a good it's good to remember that while something has to solve a problem and be functional, people do care how things look. If you're choosing to put something in your home, in your car, carry it, whatever it is, we do like things that look nice. Well, it, it good design enhances life, doesn't it? I mean, it does. Gives you pleasure. And, and if your product is a pleasure to use and to look at, it's going to be successful. Thank you. And I've got one final question for you, Mandy, before we finish, if that's OK. And um, that's what would your number one piece of advice be to any new or aspiring product creators? I know it's a big question. I, well, uh, it's, it's a general answer. Do your homework. You know, don't jump into it too quickly. Look at it really objectively and make sure your idea is your idea and you're not pinching somebody else's idea inadvertently and make sure that the market is going to part with their money to, to buy your product. That's brilliant. Thank you so much, Mandy. Thank you for everything you've shared. I think your story and your examples are fascinating. I think you've given us so much sort of useful, practical advice. Um, I've certainly learned a lot from you as well. Thank you. That's a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end of this episode. If you enjoyed it, please do leave me a review. That really helps other people to find this podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes and do tell your friends about it too if you think that they also might enjoy it. You can find me at vickyweinberg.com. There you'll find link to all of my social channels. You'll find lots more information, all of the past podcast episodes and lots of free resources too. So again, that's vickyweinberg.com. Take care, have a good week and see you next time. If you've been inspired to start a podcast in 2024, I really recommend my podcast host, Captivate. Captivate were my top pick when I started podcasting four years ago because of how easy it was for a complete novice like me to get started. I've stuck with them for the last four years because Captivate is still really simple to use. They keep adding great new features like the ability to share ads like these and they've just been really reliable. So when you're ready to start your own podcast, you can use the link in the show notes and get a free seven-day trial with Captivate.